0: So Philip Bliss penned these opening words to his well-known and much-loved hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Now with any good hymn, if it really is a good hymn, you can actually use it as a theme for preaching because the hymn writer will have based everything that he's written firmly upon the scriptures and that's true of this hymn and so we're comfortable using it as a starting point and to introduce certain important themes for us. Over the next few Sunday evenings. And with those words in mind, I want to bring three points, three things that will help us to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, why He came, and why each of us are so much in need of Him. Well, let's think to begin with very simply who it was who came. The second line of the hymn says, For the Son of God who came. And again and again, the Bible insists that this Jesus of Nazareth is none other than the Son of God. And that as such, he is not less than God. But he is the second person of the Godhead. Three persons each one fully God, and yet but one God. The verse which is probably the best-known verse in the whole Bible is John 3, 16. It tells us that God, on account of his great love, sent his only begotten Son. Hebrews tells us that this Son, Jesus, is the express image of God. And Jesus himself claimed that he and the Father are one. And that to look upon Jesus is to see the Father. There are many other verses in the New Testament which leave us without doubt that Jesus is God's Son, and in that is God. It's not my objective this evening to go through those claims in any detail or to argue the case any more than simply to state it. But this is what the Bible teaches. And like everything that the Bible teaches, you have to decide what you are going to make of this truth. You have to decide what you're going to do with this truth. It demands a response. If Jesus truly is God, if Jesus truly is the one whom God has sent into this world, then he demands a response from you. One way or another, he demands that you make up your mind about who this Jesus is and what you will do with him. Now, when we think about who it was who came, just for a moment, leaving to one side the purpose of Christ's coming, because we'll come to that next, but even leaving to one side the purpose of Christ's coming, just the fact that he came in the form of a man is a most remarkable thing. It shows unparalleled humility. There is no other example that even comes close. Some of you will recall the TV series where a managing director or chief executive of a company spends a week as a regular employee in various departments of the business that they run. They want to find out what's really going on inside their business. And then the aim is that they'll go back to their boardroom with a whole load of recommendations of how the business can be made better, how the employees can be better trained and better treated and better motivated and all the rest of it. But they only spend one week on the shop floor and then it's back to the boardroom. It's often very eye-opening for them, but it's hardly a great sacrifice. And it really is no great hardship to them to just spend a week on the shop floor but here is the eternal and infinite God the one who has always been the one who is self-existent and self-sustaining the one who is spirit being reduced to an embryo in a young woman's womb That is a staggering thought, that God would do that. Here is one who has dwelt for all eternity, clothed in his own glory and majesty and splendour. And he is reduced to a newborn baby with a cattle trough for a bed, needing to have his nappy changed several times a day. This is a most remarkable thing that God has done. Here is the one who is infinite in might, in wisdom, lying helpless in his mother's arms, weak and vulnerable, and will have to learn from scratch how to walk, how to talk, how to read and how to write. There's never been anything like this. Here is the one who has all authority over all things. Reduced to one who is a child having to obey his parents in his home. Leaving aside the purpose for why Jesus came into the world. That God would bring himself down like this is a most remarkable thought. And, of course, it's the truth. The creator, because nothing was made without him, the creator stepping into his creation, and yet it's not the creation as he first made it, is it? Here is the one who is holy and righteous and just and truth. And faithful who cannot even look upon sin. Stepping into a broken, sinful, fallen, wicked world. There has been no greater example of humility. There has been no greater condescension than when the Lord Jesus Christ took on flesh and came into this world. This really doesn't make sense. If you were God, why on earth, literally, why on earth would you do that to yourself? Why would you go from there to here? Why would you do that? Just these things alone... That Christ would do this should cause us to fall on our faces in worship as did the shepherds and the wise men. The one who is the eternal holy son of God came down into this world in the form of a man and began as a baby went through all, he went through all the natural processes of gestation and birth. He could have just appeared like he did in Old Testament days, like the angels did. He could have just come down as a man and started there. But no, no, not sufficient. He came down truly as flesh and blood. He started out the way every example of flesh and blood in this world starts out. In the womb. And went through all the same processes that you and I have been through. It's a remarkable thing. That God would do that to himself. This is God sent by God to do this. Why would he do that? Well, of course, Philip Bliss, in the opening verse of his hymn, uh, gives us a a clear answer. (coughs) The Son of God who came to reclaim. He's come to reclaim. So let's consider, secondly, the purpose of his coming. Well, he certainly came to suffer. He's the man of sorrows. Few people make such a choice. He came in order to suffer. He came knowing that he must suffer. He came to suffer. No no person has ever known such a contrast that the Lord Jesus Christ embraced. That he would leave all the glories and all the perfections of heaven and come into this world for the purpose of suffering. And what suffering it was that Jesus would endure. Now those opening three words of Philip Bliss's hymn are of course as we saw taken from Isaiah chapter 53. Where God speaks through his prophet to explain that his own son would come into the world and take the place of sinners. And we come face to face with a remarkable reality. That Christ's taking the place of sinners and Christ's sufferings go together. There's something about sinners and suffering. And Christ has come to take the place. Now Isaiah says a lot of things in in chapter 53. We only read the first few verses the passage will the whole chapter will be familiar to some of you but throughout of it all isaiah talks about in a very comprehensive way the way this one who comes from heaven is going to suffer isaiah explains that jesus will experience mental and emotional anguish and heartbreak despised and rejected Christ would know mocking and ridicule and scorn and derision. He would know the humiliation of being stripped naked before being nailed to that cross. And Jesus would be brutally tortured and killed by one of the most barbaric forms of execution that man has ever invented. You know, personally... The language of Isaiah chapter 53, it's rather vivid. But I don't think it really comes close to capturing the horrors that Christ endured. And in this chapter, the fact of Jesus stepping in as the substitute for sinners is hammered home. This is why Jesus came. He came to come and stand in the place where sinners deserve to be. He came in order that he might take upon himself that which God ought to place upon every single sinful man and woman. In verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53, the word our, O-U-R, appears five times. Five Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we're healed. He's the one in verse 4 who's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Me. Mine. Verse 6. Like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our iniquity laid upon Christ. The end of verse 11 of Isaiah 53. He shall bear their iniquities... Why is he the man of sorrows? Because he's going to stand in the place of sinners, and it is a very sorrowful place to be. It's a very sorrowful place to be. The end of verse 12, second half. He poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressions. He transgressors, I'm sorry. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Those who Transgressed against God's law. He takes upon himself. That which is deserved by sinners. And that which is deserved by sinners. Is a place of great sorrow. And grief. And in verses 10 and 11. Isaiah there declares. That this suffering that Christ would endure. Would actually accomplish. And achieve the purpose for which he came. He's come to actually accomplish and achieve something. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why did it please God to bruise his own son? Because it's the only way he could save lost sinners. And God's heart of compassion for lost men and women is so great. Because of what it will produce... It pleases God to put his son under this because he rejoices in that which his son is going to accomplish. What a heart of compassion and love God has that he's willing to put his own son through this in order that he might accomplish that for which he sent him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering. For sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He's come to suffer in order that he might save. Now, Bliss puts it as Christ reclaiming sinners. Reclaiming sinners. Christ is paying the ransom. Christ is buying us back. Is that your testimony? That you know that Christ has paid in full the ransom for your sins. That through his shed blood at Calvary, he's brought you back. He's reclaimed me for his own. It pleased the Lord to bruise Christ because it would fulfill his purpose in atoning for my sins, for your sins. And Christ's death, of course, is the satisfactory and sufficient sacrifice for sins. Now, when we read a a chapter like Isaiah 53, when we read about what it says is going to be experienced by Christ, and we read there without any uh, ambiguity whatsoever that it's all because of sin and it's in the place of sinners that he is going to suffer such horrendous things, surely it begs one very simple And obvious question. Just how bad must sin be? Just how bad must sin be? Now in the field of medicine, it's often the case, though not always, but it's often the case... ...that the most drastic and devastating treatments are reserved and required for the most serious illnesses and conditions. It's not always true, but often it is. The most drastic treatments are reserved and required for the most serious illnesses and conditions. When we read Isaiah 53, if that is what is necessary for Jesus to deal with sin, if anything less than that would not be sufficient for Jesus to deal with sin, just how bad must sin be? Philip Bliss understood the answer to that question. Ruined. Sinners. Ruined. That's my final point. Sinners are ruined. Now you'll find some in Christian circles who prefer not to bring sin into the conversation, even when talking to people about the gospel. There are others who tend to try and skirt over it as quick as they can. They feel it's not the most pleasant, attractive or helpful topic to raise with somebody. Why on earth would we want to level such an accusation against someone that God thinks they're a sinner? But, you know, even when we have a good understanding of these things, there can, you know, still be a danger or a temptation not to really get to grips with the issue of sin the way we ought to when we're wanting to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, it can be too easy to make it sound as if the gospel of Christ is just about putting the icing on the cake in people's lives. (coughs) You've done all this for yourself so far. Very good. Well done. Now, if you just add Jesus into the mix, he'll prove himself to be that one final piece of the jigsaw that you lack. And he'll make your life from good To fantastic. But if that's right and if that's true what's Isaiah 53 all about? If Jesus is no more than the icing on the cake for people's lives what's Isaiah 53 all about? If that is all people need What on earth did Jesus go through all that suffering for? What is that all about in Isaiah 53 if Jesus is nothing more than the icing on the cake and a bit of tidying up around the edges? No. Sinners are ruined. 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 The word ruined means that which destroys, that which makes unfit for any use or purpose. You've often heard me quote from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool over a century ago. He grew up in a vastly wealthy family. His father was the head of a bank. His father wasn't just the head of the bank. He owned it. They lived on a huge country estate in Cheshire. They mixed with everybody who was anybody. They were seriously, seriously wealthy. But his father's bank made some dodgy deals. It's nothing new. His father's bank made some dodgy deals, some bad investments. It all went belly up and the bank collapsed. They lost everything. They were ruined. They were ruined. Bankrupt. Comparatively destitute. They lost everything. Did you listen to the description of sinful men and women from Romans chapter 3? Non-righteous, not one. They've all turned aside, become unprofitable, none that does good. They practice deceit, their mouths full of cursing and bitterness, feet swift to shed blood, Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Ruined sinners. When Philip Bliss chose that phrase in the opening verse of his hymn, ruined sinners, was he exaggerating? Or is he correct? Did you listen as we read from Romans chapter 2? In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation to the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Indignation, wrath, tribulation, anguish on every soul of man Who does evil? (coughs) Ruined sinners. Is bliss exaggerating or is he correct? Why can't we talk about sin and just say sin is just being a little bit misguided? Sin is just a little bit of naughtiness. Sin is just being unaware that they could have so much more. They just lack that little bit of extra help and wisdom and guidance that they need. They're doing quite well without God. They'll just do better with God. Why can't we talk about the state of men and women like that? Maybe you're someone querying the Christian faith and... And that is pretty much how you've been approaching things. You don't want your world turned upside down. You just want it smoothing out a little bit. You're basically a decent sort. But any additional favours God can do you, any extra sense of purpose that God can give you, well, that would be very welcome. That would be very nice. Dear friends, the Bible says... That in the condition in which you are born, you are ruined through and through. There is no good thing in you, in God's eyes. Your life is ruined in this world and it will only get worse in the next. But here is the gospel. Yes, yes. When you hear the gospel and you accept it, it begins with a yes in your heart. Yes, your sins really are as bad as God reveals them to be in his word, the Bible. Yes, you really have been and are being ruined by your sins. Yes, you really do deserve the condemnation that you are under. And that God will one day pour out upon you for all eternity if you remain as you are. But look, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the man of sorrows. He truly did become for you in your place the man of sorrows. And what a name that is. He is the Son of God who came into this world to reclaim ruined sinners. That's why He came. That's what He's done. That's what He continues to do. There can and must be from your heart and from your lips just one response in repentance And confession and faith. Hallelujah. What a savior!